couple things I knew about Frankie Tal, who is the head coach of NC Wesleyan. I knew he was from the Gambia, a country in Western Africa. I knew that last year his team won the regular season, won the conference tournament, and made it to the NCAA tournament. I know he loved African culture, Caribbean culture. What I didn't know is that he had a degree in political science and that if he wasn't coaching, he'd probably be in the UN on his way to maybe becoming Kofi Annan or at worst, resolving conflict on the continent of Africa. In our talk today, I learned so much more about Frankie from his upbringing in Banjul, Gambia, coming to the United States, living in New York, actually playing soccer in the league in Brooklyn that I aspired to play in when I was a teenager. That I didn't know. Of course, as soccer coaches and soccer lovers, we talk about the upcoming World Cup, Russia 2018 this summer. Stick around, listen, learn, and relax and enjoy some wonderful reggae music and a stimulating conversation with my friend, Frankie Tao. Welcome to another episode of Ubuntu Radio. I'm on the phone with a good friend, Mr. Frankie Tal, and this has been a long time coming. Yeah. This conversation has been uh, a long time coming. I think, um, again, one of the reasons we started Ubuntu Radio was the recognition that I have a bunch of people around me, tons of them, who have uh, very interesting stories to tell. And if I have the capacity to tell those stories, to bring you know their light out there a little more, I should do it. And this gentleman obviously fits that bill. Frankie is the head coach of a very successful college soccer program in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina Wesleyan. And you've been there as head coach since when, 2011? Yes, that was my fourth year as the head coach. I spent seven years as the assistant. So building up that resume. And I mean, I was an assistant at NC State for, for five years, and it was about late in my tenure there. Yeah. One of the things I recognized, there's not a lot of even black assistant coaches in the country. I think I was one of five, let alone black head coaches in the country. So as one of the few, I'm assuming one of the few in your conference, maybe even in the region, what has that been like? First of all, I want to thank you for this opportunity. I think it's always good to, or if one has the resources to to expose people in whatever they're doing, I think it's, it's very important that people are recognized. So I, so I appreciate that. But um, I've been one of the few black coaches in the NCAA. I'm just very proud of, of myself that I've been able to accomplish something that was unforeseeable, maybe... 25, 30, 40 years ago. And not only, you know, I'm not only part of being a black coach or one of the few black coaches in the NCAA, but also one of the few Africans from the motherland. But I have to um, give respect to all the people that have been there for me, that have nurtured me, that have made me love this game to the point where I am a professional in it. Yeah, man. Again, NC, NC Wesleyan has been on my mind um, probably for the last 
10 years and certainly once I met you I mean you come and play you're just a regular dude man you're one of the few head coaches I know who's like this, the, just, this is a regular band he just comes out you, you hang with us play, play ball with yeah. us so how have you been able to maintain that normalcy because the, the profession can be very stressful one of the reasons I'm not, I've never really thought about pursuing it as a profession mm -hmm. is the stress is involved with it right. but you've, you've been able to maintain to me a surprising level of normalcy, if, if that makes yeah. sense. How have you been able to do yeah. that? You're just a regular dude, man. I guess, I mean, like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm just a regular dude, regular guy out there. I have such a love and passion for football ever since I was I was a kid. I'm 51 years old, and my first World Cup was in 1978. So I've been watching the game for a long time. When I was younger, I always wanted to be a pro. Obviously, I wasn't good enough to be a pro, but when the opportunity came to be in the system, to be a coach at this level, I took advantage of it and, um, and I took it upon myself that this is what I want. This is, this is the only thing that I would like to do for the rest of my life. And I have to be really serious at it and make it a, the utmost priority. I have no desire or have had no desire to do anything else in terms of occupation since I've been an intern at Destiny in the, in the late 90s. Okay, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. And again, I hope people, when they hear me use the word regular, don't assume that, that you have not been successful because that's quite the contrary. I mean, last yeah. year, the team won, I think, the regular season, conference title, and made the NCAA. Spent some time talking about Wesley. And, and you're, I, mean, I mean, sometimes as black men or as, you know, immigrant folks, we don't, we don't talk about our accomplishments. But I think, you know, what you've done over there has been uh, amazing, the program has been successful. So, so tell the people a little bit about, basically, man, go out there and, and talk about Wesleyan in case anybody's listening. Let them know that it, it's a place to be. And again, NCAA tournament, regular season champion, conference champion. You know, what have you been doing there since 2011? Yeah, well, um, you know, basically, I, I came here um, in 2003, was the assistant coach, worked with Jason Kilby, who I um, have utmost, utmost respect for, who has been a a mentor, a brother, a friend, and has given me um, so many opportunities. Without him, I would probably wouldn't be where I am. I was an assistant for Jason for seven years, and when he left and took over a different job at another university, he highly recommended that the school hire me. From then, I mean, it's just been a roller coaster. It was a challenge. Uh, we were a top, regular, consistent top 20 team, had won the conference a couple of years, Etc. Going to the NCAA, so it was a challenge to maintain the program. But um, I had no doubt because Jason and I had very similar work ethics. We had um, similar ideas, and the fact that we had worked together for seven years and became successful, I had no doubt that I was going to be able to continue doing that. Your 
style of play that's the most difficult part of it but once you master that part of the um the job i think everything becomes a little bit easier the other challenge is um following up with the coach i mean there's a lot of coaches that go out there and watch a lot of teams but um what are you doing in the next 24 48 hours are you contacting everybody you've seen that you like and following through because that's what that's where it makes a difference there's every tournament we go to there are 200 coaches and everybody's recruiting the same type of kids so it's just been very proactive been consistent and just they having the will and desire to work hard and recruit the best student athletes you can When NC Wesleyan first came on my radar, obviously I've got a bunch of friends, folks that are my friends now who played for you, who, who might have played before you, and it was a different sort of model. Again, it, it's division, it's not division one, it's, it's division three. Division three, and again, conference champs, regular season champs last year. How many times have you guys won regular season championship or the conference title? Well, in my in my tenure as the head coach, we've won the. Regular season title twice and gone to the NCAA tournament once, and we've also won the conference tournament once. While while I was the assistant coach, we we won it a number of times. So we've been pretty successful in terms of you know winning the regular season, the conference tournament, and getting into the NCAA tournament, which is which is not an easy task. Earlier, you mentioned that the coaching was something that you'd always wanted to do. Now, when you got the opportunity, when Coach Kilby left and you took over the program. What was something that surprised you about the job of being a head coach? Again, you were there like five, seven years as an assistant. But what was one thing once you got the helm and you're the man now? What was one thing that sort of surprised you? Well, I think there were two areas that. I was kind of a little bit surprised at the amount of paperwork that one has to do and the organization that one has to have and go through is incredible. A lot of people have no understanding of what a head coach does at the intercollegiate level. A lot of people think that we just wake up and hang around and at 3 p.m. we show up at the field, practice and go home. But I was it was I was I was able to realize pretty soon after becoming a coming head coach that there's a lot of paperwork that you have to do practice preparation dealing with players academics dealing with players disciplinary issues within the team within the administration dealing with the grades social aspects and everything so i realized that there, there were a lot of hats that i had to wear that i didn't really realize when i was an assistant coach yeah as an assistant again i mentioned before that i was an assistant at NT state and i think I accepted that that the paperwork part that my job was to kind of do all that so the coach could then show up at three o'clock and coach and coach. But I also yeah. recognized the number of things that he had to do within the athletic department and the university, mm-hmm. the university in general, and also outside to kind of mm-hmm. politic and market and and that yeah. kind of thing. So. And I, we had the luxury at the, at the Division One level, I think, of being and having access to probably funding and people that you may not. So, so how is that aspect? People don't understand. You still got to go out there 
talk to people who might be interested in giving back to the university so that your program can yes. flourish because at the end of the day, yes. you need money yes. for yes. travel, for blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. so, so was that part something that you weren't ready for as well? And how has that been in the last, you know, seven years or so? Yes, I wasn't, definitely wasn't ready for, for that part. The fact that obviously we have as funded as the Division One teams like the Brooks and the NCT Carolinas. So therefore, we have to depend on the budget, the limited budget that we get from the institutions and also funding from alums, from the alums. Now, the challenge here was that NC Wesleyan is only about 60 years old. So you're not talking about a school like NC State that's, that's probably 100 years old that has like a huge alumni base. Our alumni base wasn't, wasn't huge. And we had a lot of young patterns that had just graduated within the last past 10 years, at least when I took over at the time, that were still paying their student loans. So those individuals are not able to, to sponsor help fund the team. So, you know, we had to do a lot of fundraising, you know, car washes to make another additional $50 to add to the budget. Are you serious? Like a yes, car wash, yes. just like a regular high school team or a club team would yes. have to do at the collegiate level? Yes, yes. A lot of people would not recognize that. So what, what yes, are the hurdles? What are the hurdles are there? Um, I mean, at our level, it's the budget, it's the funding. Um, most Division three schools do not have the resources and the funds to really fund all the athletic teams as fully and as well as we would like to, as the coaches would like to. And my case is very special. We have a very unique situation here at MCO West again because we usually carry about 45 to 50 players. You see, I heard about that. I heard about that. When NC Wesleyan first came on my radar, and I'm still baffled by how you can manage to do that, given the budgetary limitations of the yeah. university, and specifically uh, an Olympic sport like soccer that just does not get that kind of funding. How in the world do you do that? I'm, I'm a guy that um, once I'm committed to something, I'm committed. I, I you coming into the job that the school expected me to to bring in numbers up in the 40s. So I just think about myself that you know what I'm gonna get as many players as possible, and we try to give everyone an, an opportunity to opportunity to play. We have an A team and a B team. Basically, top 25 players play on the A team and the rest play on the B teams. What we try to do is when the A team plays on Saturday, the reserve team plays on Sunday. When the A team plays on Wednesday, reserve team plays on Thursday, which is really something that we got from the European model. And when Chelsea plays on Saturday, usually the reserve team plays the next day or on that Monday. And that gives everybody an opportunity to play. One thing that we tell recruits is that everybody that comes to NC Wesleyan will play, regardless of where you are in the pecking order, regardless of what, what class you are, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. I believe that you can only get better at practicing and playing. Practicing and not just playing doesn't get someone better unless you're special. But the fact that these kids are given an opportunity to play in at least six to eight reserve games every season 
is just an opportunity that, that they cannot receive at other institutions. There are very few Division three schools that have the reserve program. So it's, it's something that I'm, I will continue to do for as long as I can. And, you know, part of coaching is just not winning the big games and having all-conference accolades. When you have player number 40, that is not part but you kept him because he's a good kid. He does well academically. He doesn't cause any problems. And you see him three years later. He's fighting to be on the first team, even though he may not be on the first team ever. That's very fulfilling. Very, very fulfilling. Born in the Gambia, and obviously came here, I believe, to play college at Bethany in West Virginia? Well, no, actually, I went to Hudson Valley Community College in Troy, New York, right outside the state capital, Albany. Played for two years. Then I, I earned a scholarship at the university in Jackson, Tennessee, a university by the name of Lambert University, L-A-M-B-U-T-H. Uh, went to Lambert. I was one of the top scholarship players and um, got to find out two or three days before our first game that I was not going to be eligible. I was three credit hours shy of being Wow, eligible. wow, wow. So it, it, was, it was devastating, absolutely devastating. I was really down. Fortunately, I was still allow it was still legal for me to train with the team. So I train with the team every every day. Now it's interesting that we are actually talking about this because that is this is where it all began, my coaching career. While I was at Lambert, the head coach Mark Jackson did not have a full time assistant. He had a part time assistant, a student assistant by the name of Claude. So basically when the when the men's team played, the women's played team played the same opponents. But there was a day that Claude had a test and the men's and women's teams teams were playing at different locations. I had to take the girls and coach them. So I was actually coaching some of my friends, some of the female female athletes that were on campus. So you were about the same age as, as everybody? I went to college later. I was about four years older than everyone. So that kind of helped. I was a bit more mature than everyone. Everybody respected me and and that, really, uh, that, that that went pretty well. Within a month, we traveled to, I believe, Auburn, Montgomery, and the head coach got a red card within 15 minutes. And I had to coach the rest of the game. So I'm a 24-year-old kid coaching at the NAIA level for about 70 minutes. And I remember the coach, the end of, at the end of the period was 41, and the coach came and shook my hand and said, hey, you, you did a good job. And then I think it was from that day I realized that, you know what, I can do this. If I don't make it at a professional level, which has always been a dream, the next best thing to do is to coach. So um, I ended up leaving Lambert after a year. I went to Bethany College, which had um, about five other Gambians that were at Bethany, including my brother, Altar, a 
So I transferred there and two years later we won the national championship. So it was just meant to happen. Before graduating, I did my internship with the AU, which was called the OAU, Organization of Africa Unity, at the time. And I, my, my senior project was in, an internship was in conflict management and resolution in Africa. So it was, it was quite an experience. Went to the General Assembly and met a lot of important people. I was destined to either go to Sarajevo or Eritrea during that time period. It was just right after the Balkan Wars. And the reason was because those two nation states were opening new peacekeeping and peace building offices and the UN was looking for young people willing to go and work in those basically war-torn countries. I was, you know, planning on doing that and then my coach from Bethany, JC Cunningham, whom I love and respect and owe a lot to, called me late July and told me, hey, I need an assistant, you want to come work for me? I said, I'm coming. And that was it. Had I not received that phone call, I probably would have been, I don't know how my life would have been shaped, because I would have been uh, working for the United Nations or the AU from then on. at the time of that in the Balkan Wars in the 90s and obviously the conflict in Eritrea and Ethiopia yeah. and just the, the conflicts all over Africa. Basically, as as bad as it may sound, if you gone if you went that route, you would have been working for the rest of your life specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa because always, yes, there's yes, always something yes. popping up. But obviously the love for soccer was there. So I want, I want to get yes. back to that. And again, one of the reasons I, I really enjoy doing this is, I, frankly, I had no idea about this. I, yes. I knew you had a degree in political science, but I didn't know that yes. part. And I've never seen you raise your voice at anybody. I can't picture it in, in, on a game, but I'm sure it happens. So yeah. knowing your personality, I can see where that UN peacekeeping voice yeah. and that temperament yeah. can lead to. Mm-hmm. You've got a degree in, in political science. But you yeah. also mentioned that you, you came to college in the U.S. sort of late, mm-hmm. your sort of mid-20s. What was the delay? And how did you get interested in college soccer in the U.S.? Was that always a yeah. thought? 
No, it was never a thought. I, I never wanted to come to the U.S. I wanted to go to France. I was a big fan of Michel Platini and Gianna Moritigana and Diego Maradona. So I supported those two teams going up. So when I was young, I, I was so in love with French football because that's what we liked. French football is the reason African football is successful. That's why I believe every African should at least be a French sympathizer when it comes to football. <laughs> Yeah, because we were, they were the first nation to open their doors to people of color. In 1978, um, Miller was playing in the Coupe de France finals for Bastille. I watched the game when I was a kid. 1978, there were people of color playing on numerous French teams. So going away, we watched French soccer every week. Coupe de France was as big as the Champions League finals. So I wanted to go to France. I wanted to be French when I was a kid because, you know, I was too young to understand so for me, I kind of felt like I actually wanted to be white. So that's, that's a question. Was Gambia, I mean, and forgive my ignorance, Gambia is a French colony or? It's English, but it's, it's not French influence. Okay. Uh, because of the sub-region, Senegal, which surrounds us in Landley. Okay. So, you know, I wanted to be like Michel Platini, Aaron Jewess, and those guys. So, and, you know, I, I was always see myself as this white Frankie running around the field <laughs> with the French. <laughs> because that's all you saw white players but then until I saw Jean Amadou Tigana Maria Stone oh that must have changed your life completely a black yes, man yes. On, the, on your favorite team doing yes. work leading yes. the middle of the field exactly That was that was just incredible, and um, that's why I wanted to go to France. But then my mom said, "No, you're not going to France. The choice was to come to America because this is where my mom started and wanted me to have an American education." I found a school in Lynn, Massachusetts, but I, when I got here, things didn't work out, and I wasn't able to attend Lynn, Massachusetts. So a year later, a year and a half later, I went to Hudson Valley Community College by way of playing in in Brooklyn. Um, I played in the Five Boroughs League in Brooklyn and another league on Linden Boulevard down on, in East New York. For Man, Frankie, I did not know that. I didn't know you played. <laughs> I didn't know all this stuff. So you, you, yeah. you moved to, to Brooklyn and how long were you there? I lived in, um, in, in Roosevelt Island, which is a part of Manhattan. Well, at what age? You said when you got to uh, Bethany and you were, helped, so you were 22. So you got to New York around 22? Right. I read this in around 22, and I started school at 23. So came here early 20s, Roosevelt Island, played in the Five Boroughs. I grew up in Brooklyn, so I played, I think this is the same league, the Five Boroughs, but it was at uh, Rutland and Troy, Boys and Girls Field. People didn't know before MLS, before USL, I mean, Five Boroughs or the Caribbean mm-hmm. League in Brooklyn was mm-hmm. huge. And it wasn't maybe big money, but for what they were doing, it was a... A lot of money, a lot of prestige, because there was nothing else. Uh, when I was in high school, I played in the Cosmopolitan Junior Soccer League in New York. So I played with the Brooklyn Italians. I played with a bunch of Italians. So I didn't get I didn't get a chance on Sundays to play in the Fire Boroughs League. But it's funny, because I'm seeing a lot of those old St. Vincent players on Facebook. And I said, I've got to start reaching out to them the way I'm reaching out to you now, because... And it might be the same thing in Gambia. Nobody talks about the old players. 
It's like yeah, the old no, players they, just came, they went, they yeah. did something, and they just forget about them. And I think it's a disservice mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the group of players who represented St. Vince in that five boroughs league in the 80s and 90s brought so much prestige, prestige that obviously yeah. we couldn't match on the national team because we didn't have the money, we didn't have the resources, we're not going to compete against the Mexicos, the Honduras. But in our little region in Brooklyn, we played against Jamaica, we played against Trini, and people don't realize that as maybe as poor as those people were, or maybe not as rich as the teams are now, they would still play, like you said, to fly the goalkeeper of the Trinidad national team to come up and play one game. It was serious business. I didn't even realize it. I didn't even realize it. It was very serious. I fell in love with Brooklyn because of the Caribbean community. You know, I love my Caribbean people because of the culture and the music. And, you know, I hung out with them so much that they thought I was one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody could figure out. They just knew that I wasn't from their island. (laughs) Nobody could figure out where I, I, I was from. I, I was playing in, in, in um, Linden Boulevard in the league and my goalkeeper after the game came up to me and said, first of all, when the lineup was called, because at the time I weighed 140, 140 pounds. And um, when the coach told him that I was going to be the sweeper, he told him blatantly in front of everybody, I don't want this guy to play in front of me. Put him somewhere in the midfield. And Solomon said, oh, don't worry, Nelson, he's, he's good. And after the game, he came and shook my hand. He said, hey, what are you doing in America? Do you want to go to school? I said, actually, I came here to go to school. Then he walk out. He said, okay, you come in to play with me. A couple of weeks later, we went to Hudson Valley Community College. I applied, got accepted. Wow. My TOEFL results, which is the test of English as a foreign um, language, um, was um, had expired. So I couldn't attend Hudson Valley Community College that semester. So I waited the, I went in the, in the spring, which was unfortunate because I never got to play with Nelson. But Nelson ended up getting almost a full ride to Elon, academics and um, athletics combined. So I, I played at Hudson Valley for two years. But that's how my journey I call it Johnny started. Special delivery. Them I wonder what it is. Long time the people them want. Iconics from the set. It's a different execution. Me come to make my contribution. I was very successful there. I was I was all region both years and I was the MVP as a center back for two years in a row, which I was very proud of because you know people that play my position don't so usually usually get the accolades. People forget about us. Yeah, I mean, I always tell the the defenders that I coach to be careful at whatever level because it's like a referee. The one time people know your name as a defender or as a goalkeeper, as a referee, is when you screw it up. So I always tell them, if if you're doing your job, it should be seamless. Nobody should ever have to mention you. It's unfortunate, but that's kind of the way it is. So as a a 140-pound center back, now you look at the modern game, even even yeah. the old game, there is no model for 140 pound center yeah. back. So who did you pattern yourself after? Because obviously 
you're not going to be jumping over people. You're not going to be uh, physicaling yeah. people. Or maybe you are. I'm not, I'm not too sure. I don't myself after Daniel Passarella from Argentina. Daniel Passarella is, uh, was my favorite defender. Passarella was the captain of Argentina in 78. He was not built like I was, but I, I felt I was, I was, I had speed. I was a little bit athletic and, and I had played midfield when I was young. I was a number eight slash holy midfielder when I was much, much younger. I read the game and just intercepted two passes. Was very good at setting the outside trap. Was very vocal and I was a very, very good fierce tackler. As small as I was, as tiny as I was, at some point in my playing career at a young age, I mastered the art of tackling and I was known for that. People avoided coming through my side, especially on the right side. So it was, it was an advantage I had. So do you think that aggressive tackling stance, is it a positive attribute of so-called African soccer? Do you think that thing is an old aspect of an African player? It's almost as if people give us the leeway to be physical and aggressive, and yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're yeah, much yeah. more than that. Yeah, I think it's an old aspect, but I think that all stems from, from free play out in the streets, in the school yard. There's no referees. You do whatever you can do to get the ball. And once you start playing organized and you're getting a little bit older, you already have those tendencies. And then you become labeled as that bruiser. Everybody hates to play against but loves to play with. You know, growing up in the Caribbean in Africa is very similar. You play street soccer and then at some eight, eight, nine years old, you find somebody in the neighborhood that sponsors to you, you get your uniforms, you have somebody out of the crew that doesn't know how to play well that becomes quote unquote the manager slash coach. And you go there and you run around and kick the ball for an hour and that's practice. Right. No movement. This is what you need to do. This is how you contain, maintain possession. But it's changing though now because there's a lot more academies in, in Africa there. There's a lot more football being watched on TV on a daily basis. So players that want to be defenders and want to be good defenders are watching guys like Gerard Piquet and Ramos and Hummels and those guys and we trying to model their style of play with those guys, which helps a lot. Right. I also think back the days to, I mean, the game was a little bit rougher. So as a defender, you wanted to, Pasarela was a little bit tough, rough. He was a no-nonsense guy. So being that I wanted to be like Pasarela, I also wanted that mental toughness and the physicality that, that he had. So again, I'm on the uh, Ubuntu Radio now talking with my friend, uh, head coach of NC Wesleyan, Mr. Frankie Tal. We talked about his record at NC Wesleyan's head coach there since 2011, uh, assistant coach there for a number of years before that under Jason Kilby. Uh, we're not talking about his soccer journey, which I didn't know took him through my old stopping grounds in Brooklyn, New York, man. And again, this is why I love doing what I do. I'm finding out things that I, that I didn't know, finding out that you could have been Kofi Annan in, in, in 10 years if you'd stuck with that political science thing. But the soccer, it kept obviously calling you back. And one of the things that you mentioned is that you were very vocal as a center back. And I think part of it is that you have to be, if you're, if you're diminutive in size, 
then the mouth can kind of make up yep. for the fact that you're not 6'4", 180 pounds and full of muscles. Yeah. Um, yep. And I think it's one of the things that I also prided myself on. Even have to catch myself these days if I'm playing pickup and we go down, that I'm still there trying to organize everybody and making yeah. sure, even yeah. if it's just pickup for that. fun, we should be doing the right thing. So the question is, Frankie, those are the sort of attributes of a coach the, and the ability to kind of see the big picture, to almost look at the game from mm-hmm. above the entire time. So do you think mm-hmm. sort of that coach was always in you, born, or it's something that somehow came up? Change your foolish plans. Stop from doing wrongs. Just live up like a man of a tough end. I think it was always in me, and this is why when I was young, I was very fortunate. I always had a football, a soccer ball. So kids in the neighborhood were all gravitated towards me. Everybody's Frankie's friend. You know, I was sheltered, but not very sheltered. I mean, sheltered, I had to be at home for, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I had to go to bed at a specific time. I could tell my mom where I was going and where I'm coming home. We had lunch at 2.30 every day. And in the summer months, at 2 o'clock, every seriously, there were about 20 kids waiting outside my house, waiting for me to finish eating to go out and play. So since it was my ball, when we played, I picked teams. I had to pick my team. And I played a lot. That's why I ended up being a pretty decent player because when I lost and I was upset, I'm taking the ball home. (laughs) 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 So I I played a lot. I played a lot. And um, I think, um, so because I had a ball and everybody waited for me, it made me have that, that, that sense of leadership. And I took advantage of it in a very positive manner. And, you know, I, I, I remember finding myself when we were young, making teams and making two 11s or two 8v8s and giving the initiative to put those teams together because I was the guy that had the ball. So the coaching was in there for a long time. I also used to hang out at the only soccer shop in the region. When I say the region, in the greater Banjul area, Banjul is the capital, and there's about couple of um, towns um, outside of the Bila Banjul area. So there was only one soccer store in a probably 15, 20 mile radius. And every coach in the National League hung out there. Every player from the national team or the national the division one level had a cousin or something that was played for another team or married to somebody's brother or whatever, sister. So I hung out there all the time, especially my last few years of high school and after high school, and I would just sit there and the best players in the country would gather there and just argue about local soccer, about African soccer, about the French and the Brazilians. So I think from that point, I started really having that inquiring coach in mind. And all of a sudden, I found myself getting into those arguments, and I was the youngest guy. I was seven, eight years younger than most of those guys. These are guys that I used to all um, the bags on the way to the national stadium, etc. So, 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 and you know, this shop was called Dinner Sports Shop, which I always, anytime I have an interview, I talk about my career. I have to thank everybody at Dinner. Is that still there? It is there, but it's in a different location. I would spend seriously six hours just sitting there. So that's where the love of talking about the game started. But when did actual playing start? 
when did actual playing start for you on a on like a more or less a club club team back home? Uh, that was in 1983. Um, in 83, uh, we had moved to a new location outside of the capital city. And I was kicking around and um, this guy came and saw me playing and came and said, hey, listen, we have a team right around the neighborhood. We want you to play for us. And the team was called Carabao United. And back then, you would go to the carpenter and they would make you a shield, a wooden shield. And then uh, you would go play against another team who would also present its wooden shield and the winner takes both home. And we, we, we happened to have won a lot of shields during that time period. That was the first time I played organized. We actually had an older person that was maybe six, seven years older than us, older than us that got us together at halftime and gave us a halftime speech, etc. So that's, 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 it's been that, that long. And it was always center back? At, at the beginning. Then at some point I moved into another team because I was always known to have good anticipation and always good with really, really the game, moving up the field and making that pass or even making that long diagonal ball to the flank. I tried playing in the middle once and this team liked it and they wanted to play in the middle. And I continued to play in the middle for a while, but we had a very important game one year and the center back didn't show up. Big game, our biggest game that year. Center back didn't show up, the sweeper, and the coach said, hey, we need somebody to play sweeper. And I, I raised my hand and I played and it was probably the best game in my life ever. I played so well that I was picked to be the next Lemon Owens. Lamin Owens is probably one of the best players that ever played in the Gambia. Played left back, center back, and in the midfield. And he was just very smooth. So all of a sudden, Frankita is supposed to be the next Lamin Owens. That never really happened. And then I never wanted to play in the middle again from that day on. In the shade. In the shade. 96 degrees in the shade Real hot, oh yes, in the shade And was there ever any thought or talk from, you know, the powers that be in Gambian soccer to get you on the national team? Or did you ever get a chance to, to advance that far? No, I didn't, man. It was it's just when I played, I was undersized. And I think it was a disadvantage for me because back then, if you didn't have size, you had to be extremely, extremely skilled and or extremely, extremely fast. I had speed and I had good skill, but no, I never really got an opportunity. And, I, and, and you know what, part of the reason I never really played at that level was I never took the initiative to play at the highest division. I just couldn't because education was important in my family. Yeah, I man, I think that's one of the things that I, I kind of picked up on when you said that your mom wanted you to come to the United States, get an American education, because she had done the same thing. And, I mean, let's just be honest, in, in the countries and parts of the world where we grew up, to be able to make it at a position in government, yes, you have to have the education, you have to have the experience, but it's also that thing that we talked about with black coaches and coaching specifically, I mean, coaching in general in the United States. You got to know yeah. somebody. So my yeah. thought is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is your family was in a position 
to maybe a little bit better off. Just the fact that you said you had a soccer ball, that, that meant you had some money to do something because there's 40 yeah. other kids in the neighborhood who really couldn't afford to do it. So talk about yeah. that aspect of it because I know you're a spiritual person. may not be a religious person, but I know you're a very spiritual man. I've mm-hmm. listened to some things you said and it, sometimes it comes back to sort of a, a phrase more akin to sort of by the will of God mm-hmm. that you kind of got to where you were. And so if yes, yes. the national team wasn't in the picture and all those things were in the picture, maybe it's God's will that you yeah. ended up, you know, where you were. So talk about that in relation to your family and their support. Obviously, it wasn't strict, but there was a schedule, an order that kind of grounded you to come back yes. and be able to do the things you eventually had to do when you were in college with the schedule and order and things like that. Yeah, my, my dad was very, very supportive. My dad brought bought me, always bought me a soccer ball and soccer shoes. Like, when those 20, 10, 15, 20, 30 kids were waiting, not only did I was the one with the ball, I was the only one that had soccer shoes. So I played in games where I was the only player with a pair of soccer shoes out of 22 players on the field. So my dad was very supportive. I, I lived with my mom. I didn't live with my dad. My dad lived about a mile down the road. And my mom was very strict in a good way. We had to get our work done. You know, sometimes, you know, I wasn't allowed to go play when I wanted to. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't happy. I was I was upset. But I believe that if my mom did it for the right reasons. And I probably wouldn't be here if my mom wasn't strict on me because I would have just gone out and played anytime I wanted to come home anytime and not focus on my academics. So I'm glad, you know, she took that route. So then when... When you make the transition or the journey to the United States, or when you decide to do it, you know, you said it was her kind of wish that you did it. Now, were you doing it for her, or did you also see the value in that? I just saw the value in it. I came and I realized that I got an opportunity to do it because the school I was supposed to go to initially didn't have football. They didn't have soccer. So there was a reason why things didn't work out. So it was just by the grace of God. I just think it's a blessing. It was just designed by God. It was meant to happen. Was meant to try guitar was always meant to be a football guy. See, that's all I talk about: football and reggae music and politics. Boom, 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 boom. Respect, <laughs> respect. <laughs> big up, big up, big up. Take your time, take your time, take your time. No need to hurry. We've heard about, and we can see having those conversations at that soccer shop how that would engender in you a love for the game. And again, obviously you guys are watching French soccer or reading about French soccer. So that goes up. But how did the political part start? Because in the places that we grew up, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. You talk about soccer yeah. being divisive. Politics is maybe the most divisive thing. And it can lead to the most tragic end for people who are not careful. So how did that develop? Take your time, take your time, take your time. No need to hurry Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy No need to worry My uncle, Uncle Dulu Tal, who, who, who I'm near after, my middle name is Dulu So I have a Christian name and a Muslim name, so my middle name is Dulu Uncle Dulu was named after, was a member of parliament in his constituent for 25 years. So he was an MP for a total for two decades. So my father was also the Gambian ambassador in Belgium, Luxembourg, and Italy. 
and later on in Sierra Leone, Guinea-Bissau, and Guinea. My uncle Dudu was also the ambassador in Guinea Library and two or three other African countries. And my dad also worked for the African Development Bank, and my uncle worked for UNICEF. So I think it's, it's in our blood. But the political part of it is in our blood. What is the present political situation there now in the Gambia? Is it one of those countries where, you know, there's been one guy there for 30 years and he's not leaving? Yeah, well, we had a guy that was there for 22 years. And, well, was voted out about a year ago in January. The, the opposition parties had to form a coalition in order to um, defeat him. It's difficult to change after 22 years of having a dictatorship. So some people in the Gambia are not, are not patient, some people expect immediate change, and I don't think you can have immediate change after having 22 years of dictatorship. But things are moving along in the Gambia, there's a lot of work that we need to do, the infrastructure needs to be revamped, we need foreign aid, we need to upgrade our healthcare system, our educational system. Gambia is one of the poorest countries in the in the world, and my Gambian fellow brothers and sisters may not be happy with me saying that I think we are miles and miles behind. Um, now, is that because it was a, a dictatorship for 22 years, and we we kind of understand, unfortunately, in those situations, yeah. the money goes to the family of the leader, and that money usually goes to Europe somewhere. And nobody ever sees it. Yeah. And when the guy leaves, well, that money's gone. And it, it never circulated. It's never used for economic yeah. upliftment, never used for development. And I also understand the dangers of talking about this kind of stuff to say, you know, yeah. go as far as you want with the conversation. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm, not I'm not worried. For me, I mean, I think I'm an aware person. But you don't hear anybody talk about the Gambia. So what do you want people to know about your country now? I would, I would like for people to know and understand that Gambia is one of the most peaceful countries in the sub-region. That's why we have an influx of foreigners that have escaped from atrocities and the civil wars that they have been through. Nigerians and um, even Senegalese, Liberians, there's tons and tons in the Gambia just there for a better life. Gambia, Gambians are known to be a very cool, calm collective. Everybody tends to say that we just kind of feel that there are no problems in the world. We just hang, hang out on the palm trees and just chill all day. But, um, you know, the people are wonderful. It's beautiful. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of um, um, resources that um, could be tapped that, are, that, that that people are not aware of. Um, recently, we, we discovered oil. And oh, that's gonna be, all right. That's danger yeah. now coming to happen now. Oh, God. It's going to be dangerous. I am dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Dangerous, I am dangerous, 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 I am dangerous, 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 I am dangerous, 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 dangerous. I know you gotta go because you got a game, but I wanted to finish up. I can't I can't leave you and not bring up obviously it's 2018, we got about 70 days until the World Cup in Russia. Now you mentioned your teams growing up were France and Argentina. Is that still the case now? Yes, people get really upset at me. If, if Argentina plays Senegal, I'm sorry, I'm rooting for Argentina. I'm one of those guys, once I'm in, I'm in. And so 
that's Unreal France and I like to see them in the finals. Well, obviously with Argentina winning because I would like for Messi to win the World Cup. It's like LeBron before LeBron won his first championship with the Heat. All yeah. the haters are talking, are talking, and then as soon as he gets yeah. that ring, they have no yeah. choice but to shut up. And I, I think I, I want yeah. him for that. But also, like you, I'm looking at the French team and I'm looking mm-hmm. at the amount of young talent that is on yeah. the team from Pogba. Yeah. The Coleman, even Payet, who people are forgetting about him two years ago. Yeah. I mean, he, to me, he was the star of the European Championship. He was definitely the best player they had, him and Griezmann, for sure, in the European Cup. No doubt. Je déclenche ma revanche à leur dépense Si je pouvais vivre loin des serpents Je croyais être un type sympa Un père exemplaire merveilleux pour eux Je suis dangereux So who else should people be looking at Besides your favorite France and Argentina If you ask me right now Who will win the World Cup I will say Brazil And I say Brazil because I've watched them play recently And they are flawless They have depth They have youth and they have experience. Do they have a number nine? Um, and Jesus is good. He's from City. I think we haven't seen the best of him. But when he plays for Brazil, he plays extremely well. It's different from seeing him play at City. Because it's, it's a different type of game. If you have Jesus up top, and then you have Neymar on the left, and then you have Douglas Costa or William on the right, in the middle, we put Fernandino and Casemiro with Coutinho in front of them. You'd have Coutinho instead of Neymar. In the middle, you'd give Neymar a little bit more freedom on the outside because maybe he's yes. going to give up a lot defensively? Yes, I would do that because I think that we've seen the best of him at Barcelona playing wide where he could just roam and isolate people. There's a few players in the modern game that are very lethal, isolated wide, and he's one of them. And I think that's a weapon that they have to use. I have Brazil winning it right now. Now, obviously, is that what I want? No. I think France is definitely one of the favorites, but I'm just a little bit reluctant of the youth. Some of the young players that they rely on have no tournament experience, that they may rely on, like Pappas, Kingsley Coleman. They've played a lot for their clubs, but not at the big stage. And I think at the World Cup, you need that. And I don't That's think Pogba he... is is the kind of leader. I don't see him as that kind of vocal. Things are going bad. Rally around me, kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Not yet. And I and I know he's still not young. Yet. I just don't see that thing yeah. yet. Yeah, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, he's not the type of guy that you can rally team around. I think Francis' downfall maybe even may end up being t- selection. If they are so deep, they're the deepest team in the world. That the coach may end up taking the wrong guys, which happens. They have two and a half players in every position, every single position. Since 1982, it was Italy, West Germany, Argentina, and France. Those were four great teams, and the Italians won it. This World Cup is the same. Spain, Germany, Brazil, Argentina. You can't count Argentina because they have mercy. I've watched them, I studied them, and analyzed them. They are absolutely a different team when Messi doesn't play. It doesn't even look like a team. It's not attractive. It's not pretty. It's different. But when he is in the picture, they come from being a good team to a great team. Regardless of what people people say, this is a team that went to three consecutive finals, lost two in PKs, and then lost one in overtime 1-0. I would like to see a final with France and Argentina or Argentina and Brazil.
Um, and then yeah. one, one of my final questions is, going back to NC Wesleyan, he said Jason Kilby, the coach that was there before, he did a lot of recruiting from Iceland. And obviously mm -hmm. you've continued that because of the pipeline being yeah. built. Yeah. What is yeah. your reaction? Or what do you want to tell your friends in Iceland about their chances in 2018? I, I think Iceland has a good chance of finishing second. It's a tough group, though. I come to the Iceland, my adopted country. I've been there a couple of times, and I love it there. They love me. They take care of me. I'm going to be in Iceland in, in June, so um, I may be watching that game in Iceland, which is going to put me in a tough spot. <laughs> they have a chance. Iceland has done a good job. And maybe this is maybe for another conversation because I can I can spend an hour and and talk about how Iceland got to this. Basically, you know, twenty thirty years ago they started a project, and now they are reaping up the benefits. They went ahead and, and first and foremost built um, a lot of indoor domes all across the country because everything was centralized in Reykjavik. So they went across the country and built all these domes just because they are not able to play all year round because it's so cold. So they have like a six months preseason. Wow. Solely on technical ability. So imagine working on your technical ability for six months. And every Icelandic coach that coaches anywhere, I believe from U8 up, has to have a UFA B license. So they have qualified coaches and they have a lot of space to play. And um, that's why they, that's where they are, where, where they are now. It's a project that started 20 years ago and they've been to the last World Cup and now they're going to the World Cup. Yeah, man. So, I mean, I think that it, I, I was going to get into it, but we got to end the conversation there because that is a conversation for another time. It's, it's something, obviously, yes. one of the reasons I want you to come to St. Vincent is in my own little way, I've been trying to at least start start that on a grassroots mm -hmm. level. And there are examples out there. Japan went through the same thing in the early 90s yeah. and they started being rewarded because I think they've made a World Cup every year since 98. Yeah. Belgium yeah. did it with the generation of kids that are coming out. Obviously, Germany did it. Germany went young about 10 years ago, and we saw the fruits of that. And I'm, I'm forgetting somebody else. Somebody else went. China, China's doing that now. China's China. doing that now. Yeah. So it's there, and it's just unfortunate in the places that we grew up. We, we love the game. We know the passion for the game. We know the talent of the youths. But there's not that focus to just say, all right, we start now, and no matter who's in office, you got to keep this thing going, and we might not see the benefits tomorrow. Yeah. But we have to keep going. We got to keep going. So, frankly, I really appreciate you giving me your time today. I know you got to go. Uh, you got a coach today? Yes, I got practice in about an hour and a half. Well, good luck to that. Again, anybody who wants to get in touch with you, you can go to the NC Wesleyan College website. What's that? It's www.ncwc.edu. And just know that anytime anybody's out there listening to Bob Marley's song, Frankie's doing the yes. same thing. Bob Marley and and Joseph uh, Hills, um, Born in Spear, Tadwal, Black Uhuru. The, the, those are those are my messes and Ronaldinos and Romarios of of Rutsuaga music. <laughs> All right, and, and if anybody who's made it this far in the podcast, you probably heard a bunch of those songs along the way. So, Frankie, yes. appreciate it, man. I know we, we're going to do this again. Obviously, in the World Cup is. Uh, yes. is nearer and I appreciate you taking the time and love to hear this story and I know there's more there and we're going to get to it later on alright thanks a lot have a great day brother. you too Frankie alright hey Mr. Music you sure sound good to me I can't refuse it thank you for listening to another episode of Ubuntu Radio as always subscribe to our podcast on Podomatic and on iTunes. Tell your friends, pass our link along, comment, engage with us. 
if you want to be a guest on Ubuntu Radio, have me sit down and have a conversation with you with a nice soundtrack. Let me know. Get in touch with us. I'm always looking for interesting people to talk to, and that's what we do here. You're going to come back, but for now, we are out. Play some music, music.